Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, this is a new look for many of you to see me up here on a Sunday morning. I can assure you it's a new look for me too as I look out at all of you. Um, but it will be uh, hopefully a good time together as we look at Malachi. Uh, it's page 802 if you grab the Bible from the back. We'll look at it in a few minutes. You can put your finger there. So while this is my uh, first time with you in a while here, I can, I, I, I will, can give you the assurance to know that uh, the very first time I preached a sermon, I had a set of notes, and I've left those notes at home today. Um, it was an interesting occasion. I was 16 years old. My uh, sister was the director of a, a community event at a nursing home, and she was responsible for bringing the, the, uh, the church service together on Sunday morning. And she called me 8 o'clock one Sunday morning and said, we've had a cancellation. The person who's supposed to preach can't do that today. Would you be willing to preach last minute and, and come and I was 16 years old and fearless and thought, what could go wrong? So I readily agreed, and I went to my room and cobbled together a few uh, notes I had from a high school Bible study I had led and decided I was ready, and I put on my white shirt and my tie, grabbed my big um, Thompson chain reference Bible under my arm and got on my bicycle, and I rode across town with a Bible under my arm to the nursing home where I was prepared to change the world with my uh, sermon that I was positive was going to bring revival to this nursing home. I realized pretty in short order that my, the, what I had visioned was not going to happen. When they started wheeling each participant in, and as they were wheeling each person in, each one was already sleeping. I know, Jesse, you have to work very hard to get us sleeping on a Sunday morning. This group came in pre-baked. They were already out. So uh, during the, they, they, all of the staff woke everyone to sing a hymn or two, and then they went back to sleep. Most of them did. Uh, and as I got up to preach, uh, there was just a couple of eyes open, and, and everyone was drifted off pretty quickly. But there were two older ladies that were awake. One was sitting over here where uh, um, Brother Kevin is in that area right there, an older woman who just looked grumpy. And then over here where Anna was sitting was someone else who was just cheerful and happy and smiling. And during the course of my introduction, almost everyone was out cold except for these two. And so I spent the next 20 minutes just focusing everything I had on, on this woman here and this woman over here. And trying, I knew that God had given me this moment and I was changing this woman's life and this woman's life. Just at the moment where the great reveal happens, the point of the sermon, you say, this is the point, guys. This is the main thing. This is what everyone should be pay paying attention to. I let it out there, and I let it sit in silence so that it could just echo into the hearts of all of us. And this woman turns to her sleeping friend, shakes her, and says, you know, this isn't very interesting. <laughs> Which then left me over here to this woman here. And I gave her everything that I had, and I was focused, and we were just go. We were just having. And, and what was encouraging, she was adorable. And as I looked, every time I looked at her, she would applaud. She'd just give a one hand clap. She'd smile, and we had this. We had a moment, a special moment here. Well, at the end of the service, my sister said, "Would you like to meet the people?" And I, I lied. I said yes, but I really just wanted to meet this woman over here. And so she took me around, but of course she started on this side of the room and woke each person to shake my hand. 
And I, so they thanked me for coming. I told them it was a blessing to be there. And I, I was nice to this lady. And then I got over, finally, we get over to the, the one woman who was just, would applaud when I looked at her and she was so happy. And before my sister could introduce me, I reached out my hand and said, I'm Chris, it's a pleasure to meet you. And my sister looked startled. She looked back, she goes, oh, I'm sorry, Chris. Betty Sue is deaf. <laughs> and she can't hear a word you're saying. The notes from that sermon I have left at home, but maybe one day I'll dust those off and bring those back. Instead, I have opted to continue our series of Malachi uh, as assigned, and we are looking um, at the last book of the Old Testament, and we're kind of uh, skimming through it very quickly. Uh, you may remember in, if, in your Old Testament history, if you, if you remember the timeline of the Old Testament, uh, Adam and then Noah and then Abraham, and then uh, we had Joseph. And his sons and Joseph in the technicolor dream coat, right, Joseph, they went into slavery in Egypt, and then they, they came out of Egypt, had a period of judges, we had a period of kings, the nations went into exile, and then after exile, uh, the people started to come back. And there was Ezra, who, who came back and kind of re revived people with the law, the temple was being rebuilt, uh, we had uh, Nehemiah, who came and helped rebuild the walls, but around that time, Malachi comes, as the last prophetic voice and position lastly in our Bible to say, uh, you know what, there is hope coming. There's, a new, there's, there's something coming. The dawn is going to be, the fog will be lifted. The dawning is coming. And that's as we go through Malachi, and, and, and Jesse pointed out this is the last prophetic voice to 400 years of silence, which the people didn't know were coming, but we know. And at the end of that silence is the Christmas promise, the hope that we talked about earlier. You remember the, the, the sermons that we've had so far, Ted talked about how uh, Malachi came and, and, and encouraged the people that there was more than just going through the motions. The people had come back, they had, uh, they had been become uh, quite comfortable maybe in their temple worship, but maybe too comfortable, just going through the motions of, of what faith was. Uh, you remember uh, that when uh, Jim talked, he talked about how the priesthood had become corrupt and, but God offered a new heart to the priests, and, and, and we, in the New Covenant as priests, also get promised that new heart as well. Uh, Jeff reminded us last week that while we are not faithful, God always is, and that's just a common theme we see uh, in Malachi. So today, if you want to pull out your, uh, your bulletin, on the last two uh, pages or so, there are three areas. If you would like to take notes, you're welcome to. Um, they are, and what we'll talk about today in, in today's passage, that, that in, in, we look at Malachi comes and introduces our sin, reminds us that we are sinful people. But he doesn't leave it there. He also says, you know what, there is a solution coming, and that's the great dawning. The solution is coming, and Jesus is coming, and, and will we'll give us a new opportunity. And, and as a result, that new opportunity to live a single-focused life, focused uh, on God and, and for us in Christ. So that's where we're going. So if you would like to join my nursing home friends and zone out and take a little nap, you've got the highlights. Uh, but before we dig into God's Word, let's pray. Our Father, you are our great teacher. You are the great revealer. You gave us a word that we might know you and we might know what faith is and we might have uh, a walk, a fellowship with you. Father, be our teacher today as we look at your word. 
Pray I would not be in the way or anyone else would be in the way that you would speak, touch our hearts, that we might know you better. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, his name was Jack, and he was an old friend of mine, and he called me some time ago and, and said, um, uh, the, the first words on the phone were, she left me. And I thought I could connect the dots and knew what he was talking about. I thought I knew the story, but then as I started um, unpacking, hearing more, I realized there's more to the story than I realized. See, the story began a few months earlier than that. He called me and said, uh, congratulate me, Chris. Uh, I'm, I've gotten married. I said, oh, Jack, that's great. I didn't know you were dating anyone. And he said, well, you may know that I went to the, uh, to the Ukraine on a missions trip, and while I was there, I met a beautiful woman. She was uh, faithful in the church, and we worked in the orphanage together. We worked at the food bank together, and we really had this common connection, this heart. After I came back from that missions trip, I went back on the, on the second time just to, to get to know her a little bit better. And Jack told me that um, we just, we knew this was right, and we got married. Wasn't sure quite what to do with that at the time. About six weeks later, Jack called me and says, hey, we're flying through Chicago. Uh, would you meet Ekaterina, my new wife, and, and, and we got a little layover. And so I agreed. I went to O'Hare, picked him up from the airport. We went to an oasis, and we sat for a half hour or so and, and just got to know each other a little bit. And what struck me at that time is Ekaterina did not really speak English. And I turned to Jack and said, how does this work? And Jack assured me that it was fine, that there, there are, there's a love that words cannot always articulate, uh, but their hearts were common and they, they liked to be together and they were learning to communicate and he was learning uh, Ukrainian and she was learning English and it was going to be fine. It was a few weeks later, a month or so later, that Jack called and said, she left me. And I thought I knew the story. I said, I see where these dots are connecting. And he said, no, there's more to the story. He goes, I haven't been honest with you. He said, there was no missions trip. There was no orphanage. There was no food bank. You know those emails you get, would you like to meet a Russian bride, a Ukrainian bride? He goes, I clicked. He said, and if I told you that during the time, I knew you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have thought that was the right thing to do, and so I told you the story of this missions trip so that you would think it was fine. Probably none of us have had that conversation before, right? So what do you say? And I found myself at that very moment thinking to myself that everything, every speech I wanted to give, everything I wanted to say... It began with a very judgmental, how could you be so fill-in-the-blank? And just as I was preparing my pontification, my convictions came up so strong that I believe it was the Holy Spirit, it was God working in my life, and almost audibly I heard the words in my own head say, Chris, don't you dare. Jack is my friend, my brother, and he's a child of God. He's made some terrible mistakes. But what came over me so strongly at that moment was my sin and my mistakes are not better than his. We all stand before a holy God who is perfect and sinless. And while I might look at Jack and say, no, his sins are worse than mine, when I stand before a holy God, our sins are equal. And while it's very easy for me to look at someone and say, no, their sins are worse than mine, 
And when, when he had that thought, that was bad. But when I have that thought, it's, it's, it's understandable, right? We like to redefine our own sin, cast our own failures in our, in our own, uh, for our own betterment. And that, that experience just really washed over me as I realized that I, my sins may be more socially acceptable, but before a holy God, they, I am not better. And Malachi jumps in in Malachi chapter 2. It's page 802 if you grabbed a Bible from the back. With the reminder to the people that we do not get to redefine the textbook on sin. And Malachi begins in Malachi chapter 2 verse 17. We'll, we'll walk through this. We'll stop a couple times along the way. Malachi says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The people were redefining sin. They were saying, you know what, what was once bad is now good, and God thinks it's fine. And God's saying, no, it's weary. It's like having a child, that, and you give the child instructions, and the child just rewrites the rules. And God's saying, you know, you're, you're wearying me. God, at the very beginning, said, this is holy, this is not holy. And when, we, and when the people were redefining holiness and redefining sin, Malachi comes back and says, you are wearying me. It's an abstract verse. Let me put it this way. I knew a woman, and she, she uh, began an affair with a man, and she, and she justified it saying, you know what, my husband doesn't love me. We, it's a loveless marriage. God has given me this man to make me happy. And she was taking what was not good, what was unholy, and saying, you know what, God has given... She was trying to make something holy that was not holy. She was trying to redefine sin. And then when that relationship fell apart, she said, God, why are you doing this to me? At the end of the verse here, where is the God of justice? And that's what the people in Malachi's day were doing. They were saying, this thing that is bad is now good. It's affirmed. It's, it's great. We should all... And, and God's saying, no... The reminder here is that God is God, and he is the one that sets the standard of what's sin and not sin. It is not in our pay grade to redefine sin. And we like to, to look, at our, look at each other and say, well, you know what, that sin is bad, mine's not so bad, but God said all sin is sin. And we're not in a position to, to, to redefine. Our culture is very good at this, isn't it? God says in the Ten Commandments, God is, God is a God of, of, of honesty, of purity. And so the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not lie. But in our culture, in some of our workplaces, the culture says, well, you know what, if, you're, if you really worked 45 minutes, go ahead and log an hour, it's okay. Or if you have to drive 50 miles for work, it's okay maybe just to write 70. In our culture, in our coworkers, sometimes we work in a place where they say, well, you know what, it's okay, just to, the boss makes too much money, it's okay, this is all fine, and we as a group just do this. And sometimes the culture changes around us to say, no, what's bad is now good. And God reminds us in, in Malachi, he says, no, God is the standard of what is good and bad. It's not something we get to redefine. We live in a world, our, our students know this, where a, a God of purity who set a commandment that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Yet our students know that sexting is normal. That sexual exploration is, is in fact, looked down upon for some of our students if, if, if they're not participating in that. The culture likes to take something and flip it on its head and say, what's bad is now good. And Malachi says, God is God. Stop wearying me by switching the ethics. God is the one who establishes what is holy and what is not, and that is not our job to try to redefine sin. We live in a world where politically, uh, well, theologically, God says, uh, respect your elders, honor the king, respect the government, uh, treat all with love and grace, but our culture says it is okay to politically assassinate those who disagree with us on political topics. If they're of the wrong party, we can blast them and say all kinds of whatever we want about them. But God is God, and God says he is holy, and we do not get to redefine uh, what is sin. So Malachi 2.17, he starts off saying, you know what, you've redefined sin, it's wearying to me. But God doesn't leave it there. Malachi doesn't leave it there. God is not one to just point out our sin and then let us wallow in it. That is often the difference between shame and conviction, isn't it? Where when we feel shame, we just beat ourselves up, say, I can't believe I failed, I can't believe I failed, I can't believe I failed, I'm not good enough. And Malachi doesn't leave it there. He, he says, yeah, we're not good enough, but there's a dawning coming. There's hope coming. And continues in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We read that verse, don't we? And we see John the Baptist. Uh, the people of, of Malachi's day didn't see John the Baptist. They didn't know. They're living on the other side of Christ. We're on this side. We see the whole story. Uh, and, and Malachi's pointing out that the, the point is that there is hope. We may struggle with sin and be convicted of our sin, but there is a dawning coming. There's a hope coming. And this pattern of, of pointing hope after conviction of sin is in the Old Testament storyline all the way throughout. You have Adam and Eve ate the fruits, and, and right away God says there will, be, there will come one who will strike his, who will crush his head. You have Abraham who lied and didn't trust God, and, but he, and, and God replies after convicting him of his sin and says, you know what, but you, the people will be blessed through you. You have David and Bathsheba who uh, commit sin and David is confronted with his sin and convicted, but God doesn't leave it there. He says there is hope coming and we know that through the offspring of that union came the Messianic line. God doesn't just beat us with our sin but provides hope. He's doing it the same here. He, he points out their sin but is saying there's a solution coming. Verse 2 and following. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he, will have, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
in these verses here, don't we see two things? We see salvation's coming. There's a refiner's fire coming, and one is going to burn away all the impurities, and there's a soap coming that's going to make us clean. But there's also a judgment coming. There's, a, there's an area where, where this sin is going to be dealt with. And he even lists here in the last few verses uh, the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, and God's going to come and judge, we judge them. Is, is this passage one of promise? Yes. Is it one of judgment? Yes. It's similar, I suppose, to uh, when a dad says to a kid, he says, when I come home, that room will be clean. Is it a promise? Yeah. Dad's coming home. Is it a threat, a a judgment, a threat? Yeah. But what's more than that is this passage is that we see that God looks, almost looks at the child and says, when I come home, that room will be clean. Because we're going to do it together. And I'm going to clean things that you're not capable of cleaning. And I'm going to refine things you're not capable of refining. And I'm going to get in there with you. And we're going to make it right. And that is the hope of Christmas, isn't it? We get, we get stuck with our own sin. We're lost with our sin. Uh, we're convicted by our sin. But there is a refiner's fire that starts with the baby in a manger. There's a, a, a soap that comes as the baby in the manger that grows up, ministers under earth, spends time on the cross taking care of our sin, that we might know God, that we might know him. I had the opportunity to, to walk with a, a friend of mine as, the, as he met Jesus for the first time, became a Christian just before I was with him, and then I, I was with him. He's telling me the story, and he just, he was, he was crying, and just kept, he kept saying, it's gone, it's gone. And through the tears, I was trying to understand what he meant. I said, what's gone? He said, the guilt and the shame that I've been holding on to is gone. That's the refiner's fire. The soap that takes what we can't fix and fixes. And Malachi is saying, there is a hope coming. The hope of the manger is we can't fix it. We're lost, we're sinners, but there's a refiner's fire that touches our hearts, burns away all the impurities, takes the soap and scrubs us clean, even in places we didn't even know were dirty. Similar message to when Jesus was on earth. Jesus often spoke on some of these same themes we're talking about today. He talked about sin. He said, you know what, your sin is worse than you think. He says, uh, you have heard it said that if you, uh, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, if you look at someone and you're angry, you've committed murder. Jesus says that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you this, that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also, he also went to the cross and, and offered the forgiveness of sins and said today to, to, the, to the thief on the cross who is full of his sins, says today you'll be with me in paradise. There is hope coming. We're not just lost in our sin, but says, you know what, there's a refiner's fire that can take that sin away. There's a soap that can make us clean. And as a result of that, of, of being uh, convicted of our sin, scrubbed clean, we're able to refocus and live a single-focused life. One of the people I like to read, is a, I'd like to learn more about, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And one of the famous lines in that book is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And perhaps you've heard that 
phrase before, but the idea being that when God calls us and Christ calls us, Jesus said it this way, take up your cross and follow me. In short, our lives are not our own. He saves us so that we can join the army and and follow after him. To take up our cross and follow. And in Malachi, Malachi is going to go on and show them ways that they're not living a single-focused life, but the calling for us to say, uh, when we find our sin, we find our solution, uh, the idea is that we can live a single-focused life. And what Malachi talks about, what he aims at, is money. And it can go bigger than that, but let's start here in, in Malachi uh, 3, verse 7. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be uh, food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations who call you blessed will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, as Ted talked about a few weeks ago, the people of Malachi were going through the motions. They were, they were just saying, I am religious, I am a Jew. And Malachi is saying, yeah, but you're not, you're just going through the motions. And Ted talked about how the dawn is coming and we can have a new heart. And Jim talked about the same thing, that idea of, of faithfulness. It's not for the people of Malachi was not just saying, I am a Hebrew, check. I am a Jew, check. Malachi says, where's the heart? And the way that the heart is coming out in this case happens to be finances. Milan, our missionary from Czech, who was here a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with him, and he says that, that Czech is a very atheistic country. And uh, what happens is, is you'll ask someone, are you a Christian? And they'll say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. And then you look at them and say, so do you believe in Jesus? They say, oh, no, no, no. But that idea being that uh, faith is not just a matter of saying, I, I can claim this. It's a matter of reordering our whole lives to take up our cross and follow. I can't just, for, for me, I can't just say I am faithful and therefore I go to church, but God wants a full life, not just one where I say I went to church on Sunday. He wants all of us. In this passage in Malachi, was, the people were living under the old covenant. And Matthew 26 to 28 reminds them, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 26 to 28 reminds them, if you obey, there is a blessing. If you disobey, there is a curse. And very practically, you people aren't giving, he says. And he says, therefore, you're not experiencing God's blessing. I think two points for us as we look at them as living on this side of the cross, members of the new covenant, two things we see in this is that God wants us to follow him with everything we have. Second, God rewards faithfulness. God wants us to follow him with everything we have, and God rewards faithfulness. 
I think sometimes you turn on TV or you read some books and you see an uh, equation to say, well, if you give God $1, he will give you 10 And they'll look at a verse like this. But I think it's short-sighted to say that God's blessing is always financial. Any more than I'd say that my love for my kids and my blessings are just financial. There are times when they say, can I have $5 for Ollie's? Yes, I will give them the blessing. The storehouses of heaven have opened. They have $5 for Ollie's. But there are other times and perhaps more loving times where I'd say, no. If you want to go to Ollie's, Use your money to go to Ollie's. Or learn that sometimes the world is not a bowl full of Ollie's, right? <laughs> and sometimes love is more than just finances. And to look at this just as a, if I do this, then God is going to bless me financially, I think is, is uh, too short-sighted. When what God is looking for is a faithfulness in everything that we have. When I was in uh, fifth grade, I attended a Christian school and the leaders of the school decided that um, there would be chapel on Wednesdays and they would take an offering during the chapel. And one of the more entertaining moments now in hindsight is as the offering plate would go, and it was one of these offering plates that was, it was big and round like a dish, would go down the, go down the row. Um, invariably, there'd be two or three kids that would put in a dollar and then quickly fish out a couple of quarters and a dime and they would turn to the people next to them and say, I'm just making change, I'm just making change. And because they didn't want people to think you're stealing from the offering plate, that would be bad, right? But they're just helping themselves to, some, to, to a change dispenser. And I found myself doing that from time to time, too, because there was a Coke machine in the basement. And so I could look good by giving my offering, but what I really wanted was the Coke. And this was my means of saying, I could put a dollar in, but if I can quickly fish out 60 cents, then I'd be able to get a Coke sometime later in the day. Giving for me was not about giving, was not about ordering my life to say, I'm giving because I want to worship God in this area. I was giving because I wanted the Coke. And I could, if I could quickly fish out enough coins before the plate went by, I could grab that. I think one of the strengths and the weaknesses of Kishwaukee Bible Church, great strength, we don't hound us for money. In fact, before Jesse's announcement earlier today, which wasn't necessarily planned, we may not have heard an appeal for money here in a long... You'd have to fish back a long time to say, when was the last time someone stood up here and said we should give? I think that's a great strength in that we don't make money our... It's not our God here. We're not trying to build this great cathedral. Uh, we're not trying to say it's all a matter of how much you give. But the, the downside of that is I think we do ourselves a disservice to realize this is an area where I need to worship God fully. And we forget there's a couple invisible offering boxes in the back that we can walk out of here and not even notice, right? I remember one time I had a there was a visitor here, and they said, I love this church. It's free. <laughs> it could feel that way, right? And the idea here being that, you know, God, God is wants faithfulness, and Malachi points out that one of the ways we can be faithful to live a life of single focus is to make sure God gets it all. And sometimes that means it's money. Personal illustration, and I don't say this as, as to extol me, this came out of an area of deep conviction for me. I was doing my taxes a year or so ago. And I got done with the, the bottom line of here's what I made this last year, here's what I gave this last year. 
And I realize it's not on the front line of my mind at all. Based on what I'm giving, it's very easy for me to slip out of here on, on a Sunday. I don't give it a second thought. And I realize I'm not worshiping God in this area. And so I came up with a plan to say every time, and, and because of my income, my income varies from month to month. And so I can't just say I'm going to give X amount every week. And so what, the, the, what I've come up with in my life and our family is when a check goes into my checking account, automatically there's a form, I've got a formula, a percent, that says, God, this percentage, percentage is, is, as soon as that check goes in, I write another check. And I write the check, it's big enough that it hurts a little. And I don't think there's a verse that says you have to give till it hurts. I don't think that, I mean, we hear that. But I have chosen that philosophy because I realize that when I give enough that's uncomfortable and I, and I wish it wasn't quite so much, it reminds me that God is the God of my pocketbook. It's not mine. And it's a very practical way to sit back and say, God wants all of me. If God asks me to give up my career to follow Jesus, I give up my career to follow Jesus. If God asks me to give up my time and serve in a ministry or take someone to coffee, I give up my time. I give up my coffee. I have have the coffee. If God says, uh, are you willing to give up your money that, that he owns? That becomes an area of true worship and discipleship for me. There was a, a number of weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, Jesse was, we were, we were uh, he was preaching through Ephesians and talked about how uh, Paul camped on sex and how it's such a personal thing and, and, he, and the line, I don't remember it exactly, but the idea of say, we can't say, I'm going to follow God in every area except this one. This one's mine. And I think Malachi would say the same thing. We're robbing God. We can't say, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to follow and God can have any part of me he wants except my giving. Well, is it a passage about giving? It is, but it's not. It's a passage about having a wholehearted discipleship, a single focus that has many, many applications. The story of Christmas is not just a child in a manger. I love what the Dolans uh, read today. Thank you for that. Reminding us that we need hope. We are a sinful, sinful people. And our sins are sometimes easy to dismiss and say, yeah, but his are worse. Or hers are worse. But no, our sins are just as... And that, manger, that, that baby in the manger doesn't come just to point out our sin, but to give a solution, to say a fog is, is lifting, the dawning is coming. And it ends in a cross, but as a, resu- as a result, we have a solution. And that solution allows us to live a single-focus life of devotion. Three questions I'd leave you with as we wrap up our time. Three questions. And, and I'd encourage you to, if you're taking notes, write them down to think about One question, real practical application for us is, how am I tempted to redefine my own sin? How am I tempted to redefine my own sin? Or you could phrase it this way, how am I tempted to overlook my own sin? Second question, this is a great one, a lunch one. Put a star by this one, ask it at lunch today. How would you describe God's cleansing of you? How would you describe how God is refining your life? How would you describe God is refining your life? 
And then lastly, a, a question to, to think about is how well does your giving reflect your love for Christ? How well does your giving reflect your love for Christ? Three questions to think about as we uh, look to the manger. We look at the hope and we look at what that brings to us. Let me close our time in prayer. Our Father, we are here not because we have it together or we have the answers or we've perfected it, uh, but the truth is is that our sin is great, but you haven't left us there. You love us. You save us. You give us a, a solution that we can't dream up on our own. Father, we pray that that would drive us in our love for you and how we walk in every area. Thank you, Father. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.